<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's roundtable on this Friday morning, November 13. Well, it's been 10 days since Election Day, six days since the networks called Pennsylvania for Joe Biden, putting him over the 270 electoral votes necessary to win the White House. And just this morning or early this morning or late last night, uh, everybody called Arizona for Joe Biden, giving him 290 electoral votes over Donald Trump's 217, with Georgia and North Carolina still uncalled. So is it over yet? Well, it seems to be for everybody but Donald Trump, who still insists that he won the election, but it was stolen from him by state election officials and the media, and who's vowed to keep challenging the results by filing lawsuits until he gets to his Supreme Court and they overturn the election, declaring him, not Joe Biden, the winner. And so far, most top Republicans, starting with Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, are still standing by him. So what the hell's going on? Have we seen anything like this before? And is there any chance that Trump's efforts to overturn the election results can succeed? on today's roundtable. We welcome back the same four reporters who joined us the morning after November 3rd. A lot has changed since then, or has it? <laughs> Let's say hello to Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Editor, NBC News Digital. Hi, Ginger. Hello, glad to be back. Maya King, political reporter for Politico. Hello, Maya. Hi there. Jason Dick, Deputy Editor for CQ Roll Call. Jason. Morning, everybody. And Chris Catalago, national political reporter for Politico. Chris, good to have you back as well. Thank you, Bill. So uh, as of this morning, 290 to 217 is the electoral count, not yet certified by all the states, of course. Is there any doubt that Joe Biden is the president-elect? Chris? There's not. There hasn't been for, uh, for quite some time. There's been some uh, uh, disputes or differences in how the various media has uh, has decided to call these these states, but I think it's been clear. Obviously, we know Fox News came in early with the Arizona call, and of course, uh, most of the other media confirmed it um, last night. And I think if you look at the just the pure margins that Joe Biden is up, whether there are you know whether it's the recount and in Georgia or whether uh, folks move forward in Wisconsin or any of these other states they've talked about, um, it uh, would seem at this point to be uh, much too big for Donald Trump to overcome. Ginger, Jiro, and NBC have the uh, same read? Yeah, I mean, we declared Biden as president-elect 
um, last Saturday. Um, I think a lot of us probably felt like we had been, <laughs> took an eternity, uh, yeah. but it was a few days of waiting. And, and I think that it's really NBC's decision desk, our team wanting to make sure that there was, there was no doubt, that they had it right and that they weren't going to make a call beforehand. And that means that once they make that call, they're very confident that they've made the right call. Um, you know, there was several days before uh, they made the call as they did Thursday night in Arizona. Um, and, and, you know, trying to make sure that we have the confidence of the public and explaining to them that this is what's going to happen. And I, and I think that um, we are seeing some undermining of that confidence. And I do think that the public sort of grapples with listening to the press on something like an election. Um, but that's why we see the delay in Arizona. That's why no one's made a call in Georgia yet. Um, it's about making sure that we do it correctly. Yeah, and Maya, you've been you've spent some time in Georgia, and I looked this morning. The two states then, if uh, with Arizona called for Biden, are outstanding: are Georgia and North Carolina. Where in North Carolina, Donald Trump is up as of this morning by seventy thousand, some seventy thousand votes. In Georgia, Biden up by fifteen thousand, and they've started the recount or audit there. Uh, what's your read on those two states? Uh, not that not that it matters if both of them win for Trump, Maya, but what do you see happening there? Well, I think it's probably safe to say now that um, that North Carolina is going to, um, when all of the votes are counted, go towards Trump. That was a state that Democrats were hoping to flip, um, but the margin looks like, and then of course the 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 Senate result that we saw with um, yeah. Tom Tillis, you know, retaking his seat there kind of looks like, you know, this is probably going to, again, um, be a state that goes towards Trump. Now, Georgia is a really um, a really precarious situation because it's a 15,000 vote lead that Joe Biden has and a pretty clear a pretty clear win to Democrats there, even though the margin is slim. But a hand recount, which is what the secretary of state is calling for, is going to take a really long time. Um, mm. And process mm -hmm. itself has confused a number, um, not just of voters, but also of folks who will be in charge of, of doing that, of, of actually like doing that hand recount. And now looking ahead to the runoff elections, it's kind of gotten a couple of, of Democrats um, a little, just a little bit concerned about what the outcome of this election will look like now in a state that has a history of voter suppression on a really wide scale is now again calling into question the results of its election. Um, you know, some folks that I've spoken to have now said, okay, well, what does this look like if we have a really close race there in a few months with, um, you know, uh, leadership of the Senate or control of the Senate up for grabs and what kind of issues might that cause? At the same time, we have to realize that there's no 15,000, there's no state recount, at least the, search, the research that I've done, that comes anywhere close to changing 15,000 votes. No, I mean, it, it, there would have to be something really fundamentally wrong with the administration of this election for, for those votes to go in a different direction. Yeah. Uh, so, Jason, we love having you on the panel for many reasons. One is because you are our Arizona guy, right? So, <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so is Arizona uh, John McCain's revenge? Uh, it, it may be. I mean, I, I it, you know, it, on a, it would be a great narrative. I think that, you know, Arizona, for Democrats there, they were really 
Um, they were both prepared and lucky um, in, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, Mark Kelly, at the, uh, you know, who yeah. won the Senate seat uh, that Martha McSally uh, had been appointed to to fill McCain's seat after he died. Mark Kelly is an outstanding uh candidate. He also had a lot of contacts that he had made, uh, you know, in, in the course of being Gabby Gifford's husband, the former congresswoman who yep. survived an assassination attempt. Um, you know, he's a, I mean, he is quite literally a world famous guy. You know, he and his twin brother are astronauts. Um, <laughs> right. And and uh, so he's a prodigious fundraiser, a good candidate. And Martha McSally is quite literally one of the worst candidates uh, in, in electoral politics these days. <laughs> She's lost two statewide races uh, in, in what could have been favorable circumstances for her. She's a combat veteran. She had a lot going for her, and she just flopped. And then, you know, on, on the other hand, too, I mean, the state is changing. It is, uh, it, it's a very different place than it was when I was growing up there, where it, was, it seemed mm-hmm. like almost kind of a, a, a haven for uh, mid white Midwesterners tired of the cold. Uh, now it's tired. It's people who are tired of, uh, high taxes in California. And, um, and, and so that has shifted a lot of, of the demographics there in favor of, of, uh, of Democrats. Uh, that was, that wouldn't, wasn't necessarily a slam dunk in other States. Uh, you know, Democrats, I think were hoping that Latinos would, um, be the difference for them in Texas and, and in Florida that didn't happen. So I think that they got lucky and they all, they were also very well prepared. Yeah. So um, let's talk about how Donald Trump is handling this. Um, Ginger, at 11.18 p.m. last night, um, I got a tweet from Donald Trump. I think 50 million other people did, too, where he said that uh, any states still in question should be automatically listed in the Trump win column. (laughs) Uh, Now, does he realize that if you put all the states outstanding and Arizona was included at the time in the Trump win column, he would still lose. Um, also, I'm reminded of that commercial that, you know, this is, it doesn't work that way. None of this works that way. I just keep hearing that over and over again in my mind. It just doesn't work that way. Right. Um, you don't get to like walk in and be like, Oh, look, unclaimed property. I take Arizona and Georgia. Um, not how it works. Uh, but it's, it's a, clever thought maybe um i you know i think that he is trying to position himself as the egregious you know and that is what he has done his entire political career and before um the guy who was wronged um he managed to get himself elected president on a message of being the guy who was wronged and other people who felt they were wronged also. Um, So it's not really surprising to see that messaging continue. I think that's exactly what we're watching. Um, Does it make sense? No. Is it going to work? No. Um, is it going to maybe raise him some money? Although, you know, every, all the speculation about that, he hasn't been raising money very well the last six months. So I'm not sure how much more money he's going to raise um, going forward, but uh, it's his message. And, and, and Chris, you know, in addition to this, his uh, legal team has been filing a flurry of lawsuits or at least threatening to. Um, we haven't seen any of those uh, a, have any substance to them, or B, get anywhere in the courts yet, correct? Yeah, that's right. I think if you look one by one at these lawsuits, these are these are uh, allegations, um, including the ones of fraud or widespread fraud that uh, pretty much every 
elections uh, official, including the one in Georgia, has said that they have not seen yet. I think the better way to look at these lawsuits is, um, and this is something that the Biden campaign and their lawyers had said early on, and a lot of uh, experts have come and and, uh, come in since to verify um, the thought, is a way for Donald Trump to kind of further his own narrative that this was somehow stolen from him to keep this going, to have something to talk about um, that that would make Joe Biden somehow an illegitimate president, rather than a serious legal fight or dispute um, that he could actually win. Um, so mm-hmm. it's creating this narrative for Donald Trump that, he, that he's now used for over a week now that um, something was terribly wrong and he actually should have won, um, rather than trying to win one by one in these courts. Well, how long, Maya, do you think they can keep up this game? Yeah, I think that's really the question. It's a, and I think it's incumbent. It's going to be as up until, I believe, the Electoral College votes, um, you know, next De- month. December 14, I believe. Yes. Or is, I think it is the 14th. Um, and I think, you know, one of the concerns now is whether or not they try to start applying pressure on electors. But even then, um, you know, there have been stories out already that have said that electors are going to take the lead from the American people. And it's important to remember, too, that this was a very decisive win um, by Joe Biden. I think, like um, Ginger said, you know, if you were to put all of the um, votes that are still in question into the Trump win column, the president still loses. So, you know, this is just really nefarious and more than anything else, just sows confusion and, and division, I think, among among actual voters and people here. And it's a national security risk as well. I mean, this is holding up um, the president-elect's ability to get any briefings, to really continue the transition. Um, and it's just, I think, just calling into question, again, the legitimacy of this Democratic ticket, which certainly won in a very legitimate way. And while this is going on, of course, um, so far, most Republicans, leading uh, elected officials, Republican leaders, are standing by the president, saying he's got every right to do this, uh, including, of course, members of his own cabinet, famously this week, Secretary of State George Pompeo, uh, Mike Pompeo, was asked um, about the transition. Uh, Here was that uh, question and answer. Is the State Department currently preparing to engage with the Biden transition team? And if not, at what point does a delay hamper a smooth transition or pose a risk to national security? There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. Ha, ha, ha. Jason, (laughs) uh, is the Republican wall starting to crack a little bit? Uh, It it certainly looks like it, because, you know, yesterday what we started to see on Capitol Hill was a a kind of a flurry of Republicans from Chuck Grassley, who's the Senate president pro tem, uh, to Lindsey Graham, uh, who is, you know, always there to support the president, uh, and and Jim Lankford, uh, John Thune, the majority whip, saying, no, you know, Biden should be should have access to all of these um, you know, the intelligence briefings, the te- president's daily brief, as is his right. They're not saying, they're not calling him president-elect uh, Biden so much, uh, but it, it, do- it certainly does seem to crack. And I think that there is some, uh, I think it's dangerous gamemanship, but it, it is gamemanship uh, it, it to to not depress their base, you know, because they do have these two runoffs in Georgia that will determine the majority, uh, you know, and, and 
Granted, Georgia has rarely been kind to Democrats in in, in uh, statewide runoff elections, but there is that chance that you know if if Democrats were to win them, that they could get the majority. So McConnell, you know, is is doing what he does best, which is sort of mumble this metronomic line about you know how Democrats are terrible and so forth. But you know he's he's he knows you know what is what is up, and I think a lot of the people are, are just trying to make sure that they don't say anything that could you know turn off the the base and and some of these people are in cycle too like rob portman who you know last last check has a brain uh you know he he he's even said well the president has his rights you know he's up in 2022 he needs some some yeah. some trump people to vote for him in ohio if he wants to win re-election so i i think it's pretty bad you know like to to do this because to to not acknowledge reality but i get it yeah but uh, Ginger, I think Maya made the point that we're talking here, this is not just political games, right? This is a serious business of a of a transition from one administration to another with all kinds of issues involved about like getting ready to govern, to take over these agencies, right? National security issues in the meantime, what's going on around the world? I mean, this is pretty serious stuff if Biden is kept out in the cold this entire time. Right. And when we saw these um, members in the Senate, particularly Republicans yesterday, trying to balance sort of not upsetting the guy who still controls the government with uh, getting Biden into that process. And and look, I think that it, um, as Jason sort of said, it is a sort of a tricky thing here and a balance act that they're trying to make here. And I think that there's a lot of factors at play. And look, I think that there are real ramifications and we can see that, uh, the risk of that. Um, you know, my my colleague Shannon Pettypiece will have a story today that looks at some more of those, um, you know, publishing um, at, at right after we, we finished taping this podcast about vaccine planning. Um, and I mm, think yeah. that, that that's another real real issue that is being sort of, uh, you know, drawn into question is this process delays. But look, I think that um, sort of the argument that the that the sort of big picture or that the, the image of the U.S., I mean, there was a lot of people and there were a lot of people in Congress and there were a lot of people in America who believed the last election got stolen, who believed that Trump was an illegitimate president, who went on at length about that. And I think that we have shown that our, our, our democracy is a little more resilient um, and that people can say, things even um, things that are true or things that are not true about an election and we can survive. Um, and I think you see the acknowledgement, even if they're not saying it clearly on the Hill this week, that the, that the sort of mechanics of the transition uh, need to get moving, that they need to start having um, some, some handing off of information. Okay. So let's look forward over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Chris, will the president ever concede um, based on a lot of the reporting out there, uh, the the idea seems to be that he would look at the results and essentially continue to dispute them, um, not conceding that he lost, conceding that uh, the idea that that the results show he's losing or show that he lost, but that he does not believe those results and yeah. that they're not the true and correct ones. And that's kind of his way of of managing something that we know from Donald Trump is, 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 uh, is something that he has an incredibly hard time coming to grips with. And that's losing. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. He's always, right. he's always spun losses over his career as wins. And if you look back at his business, <laughs> so, his business life and, and his time, 
um, in the public eye. It's always been, it's never been his fault. It's always been someone else's fault. Um, you know, he's actually gotten ahead, um, whether it's been bankruptcies. Um, and so this would be very much done in the same way. All right. So he doesn't concede. Maya, does he show up at the inauguration of Joe Biden? Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Or or not to mention, would he be invited? But let's say he's invited. Does he show up? And we should start with is, is he invited, though? I imagine. I, um, I, gosh, I, I, we don't, I don't see any reporting out there that shows that he won't or will, but you know, perhaps that's a great opening for him to spend the weekend at Mar-a-Lago. And um, <laughs> Which, you know. Yeah. Uh, so Jason, does he run for reelection or does he run rather again in 2024? You know, I, I think that that is, is a sense of real dread <laughs> for a lot of Republicans uh, because they're, they're already ready to turn the page. You know, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, yeah. he said, we won, you know, yesterday because he's, he's looking at a slimmer Democratic majority to, and the House to chip away at in 2022. You know, the Democrats will have a pretty small majority. And, you know, if Trump is overshadowing everything that they're trying to, to do to move on and to, you know, win back the majority of the House and so forth and develop, you know, some people maybe in their 40s or 50s, say, uh, to, for the next uh, sort of rung of political leadership, I think that that is, is sort of a sense of dread. I mean, he, he might, but, you know, I think one of the things that is uh, a little that we we tend to overlook a little bit is just how much of this reelection campaign was really a White House operation. You know, Kaylee oh. McEnany was on, oh, yeah. on yeah. Fox yet and Hold said, up. well, I don't know. You'll have to ask the White House. It's like, well, you're the White House press secretary. <laughs> <laughs> but she was there as a campaign operative. And without the mechanism of government, I mean, I think it's a it's a harder run for him because he always gets people to pay other people to pay for things. And this, right. you know. I think it would be tough. I think he probably does at least entertain it because that's the way he, I mean, he has to be the center of attention, it seems, which is why I doubt he'll go to the inauguration because it would require him to shut up and sit down and let somebody else have a moment. Um, So I I doubt he'll be at the inauguration, but I think that he'll dangle this, you know, 2024 run, uh, if nothing else, just to, to keep the focus on him. Uh, And it also freezes out any other Republican from talking about running in 2024. Right. Yeah. Um, So uh, my favorite moment yesterday or one that I noticed yesterday, not necessarily favorite, is that so we had a record number of covid cases. There was uh, five American soldiers killed in a helicopter crash in the Sinai. Uh, You can go on and on about the pressing problems that a president might have been paying attention to. Donald Trump spent the entire day attacking Fox News and saying he would never watch Fox News again because they had killed the golden goose or forgotten the golden goose, namely him. Um, uh, And then yesterday evening, however, um, he tweeted that you all have to watch Hannity tonight because he's doing a, he's doing a big thing about voter fraud. So, I mean, so Ginger, is he going to start his own network to get even with Fox? 
remember Palin TV um, and what a smashing success that that was? Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the 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 in and outs with Fox is sort of this fascinating side story of Donald Trump, right? I mean, he almost appeared yesterday to blame Fox News for his not being reelected, yeah. um, and and it's just. Um, I think it really sort of underscores Trump and what Trump brought to campaigns and to the presidency, which was message, which was image and message. He cared so much about image and message and how things were presented and how things were viewed. Um, and that's why when, you know, he didn't like what Fox was saying and anyone who, I mean, I've watched a lot of Fox in the last week because, um, it's sort of fascinating to see what's happening. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's important to know what people in America are hearing in their news stations. And, um, and, and you could just see Brett Baer sort of becoming visibly annoyed with people on his air suggesting uh, that Trump could still win um, and, and anchors cutting uh, people off. And so you could tell that there was this, this shift that had happened. And no doubt, as we saw on Twitter, President Trump saw it as well. Yeah, I would throw in there that there's a real split here for, for Fox and for Trump that you're noticing where he's tweeting about Fox's daytime ratings being down and their news programs basically blowing uh, blowing the election coverage. Uh, but he's saying very different things about their primetime mm-hmm. uh, opinion hosts who he's basically lauded and, and, and is friends with and has given them shout outs at rallies and talks to all the time offline. So, you know, he is, I guess, angry with Fox. His campaign was upset that Fox's um, independent election callers and analysts had called these states early, but he certainly has not uh, severed ties with uh, uh, Sean Hannity's and the Tucker Carlson's and and the other um, evening uh, opinion hosts uh, who are basically on air making all the same points that Donald Trump is making. They're on there um, essentially trying to sow doubt about uh, the various ways that states went about with their election system, the technology they're using, these things that the news side has not reported or verified in any way. Right. So uh, I guess uh, Donald Trump would be pleased uh, with us this morning because we spent uh, 25 minutes talking about Donald Trump and not talking about president-elect Joe Biden uh, and what he's up to. Uh, with apologies, let's take a quick break and then come back and find uh, talk about the president-elect here on today's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod with Maya King, Jason Dick, Ginger Gibson, and Chris Catalago. Today's roundtable is brought to you by the Smart Union, the good men and women of the Smart Union under President Joseph Sellers. Over 200,000 strong. They're the merger a few years back of workers in the sheet metal uh, industry, uh, air traffic, rail, and transportation workers, uh, those who build America and keep America moving at the same time. We salute the members of the Smart Union, direct you to their website at smart-union.org, and of course, thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're back with today's roundtable. Maya King joining us from Politico. Chris Codlago also from Politico. Jason Dick from Roll Call and Ginger Gibson, uh, NBC News. Joe Biden from Wilmington, Delaware. And couple, last couple of days, Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, um, putting out a different message entirely. Uh, he's saying, asking Americans to be patient, to be calm, uh, showing a determination to get to work on problems facing the country, and of course, insisting that he is the president-elect and Kamala Harris the vice president-elect, and that he is going to bring people together and get some things done. Here is Biden's message. The majority of the people who voted for the president, I think they understand that we have to come together. I think they're ready to unite, and I believe we can pull the country out of this bitter politics that we've seen for the last uh, last five, six, seven years. Maya uh, and all the rest of you, uh, are Republicans ready to come together? Are Trump supporters ready to come together? Is Mitch McConnell ready to come together and work with Joe Biden? Maya, start us off. I believe they would have to be ready to acknowledge that he has indeed won the election before they'll be ready to come together. Um, That's a good start. <laughs> so especially thinking about Mitch McConnell, um, you know, even though they know and they understand that Donald Trump has lost this election, the uh, slow pace at which they've been willing to publicly acknowledge that has not given me a lot of um, optimism about their the willingness to work with him. Um, but, you know, the, the big the big thing that will need to happen, of course, um, is a stimulus bill and and some kind of financial relief. And I think it will likely be under a Biden-Harris administration that that does come to pass. Um, and 
I mean, again, you know, Mitch McConnell has not exactly signaled any willingness to work together with them on this, but that'll really be, I mean, that's the one thing that I'm really looking to, to, to set the pace of this administration in terms of how it works together um, with Republicans and, and really getting things done. And as mm-hmm. Biden says, of course, bringing people together. Well, J- Jason, I think that is sincerely uh, Joe Biden's wish, and that has been his M.O. his entire life. But is he living in the real world today? Um, he's, I think he's ver- living in the type of world that, yes, he wants to, to exist. And I think that there are some pockets of it. And I, I'm skeptical, uh, like, like the rest of my colleagues here on this panel of the, um, you know, of, of the way that Republicans have, have dealt with this. I think that it's, uh, it's kind of bad for the country, uh, to not acknowledge, uh, reality, uh, that he's the president elect. But I also am encouraged by small, like, sort of things at the margin. I hope this doesn't sound like, you know, Kremlin watching, you know, like, we <laughs> watch these, like, small little micro engagements. Um, you know, um, Gra- Chuck Grassley, the, the, uh, longest serving Republican senator, uh, you know, he, he said yesterday that uh, McConnell was going to begin uh, negotiating, you know, with Pelosi, like sort of moving aside Mnuchin, uh, Stephen Mnuchin in any kind of coronavirus mm-hmm. uh, talks. And also, you know, the, back in, in 20, uh, 2011, 2012, you know, we uh, we had the Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden working together to avoid what we call the fiscal cliff uh, at that point. And, you know, so they have a track history together. They've known each other for decades. Uh, and if anybody could move us in this direction, I think it is Biden, just because, it, you know, he, he kind of is, is, it's what you see is what you get. I mean, he really is kind of this corny guy who believes in government. Um, and I think that, you know, if there's going to be any kind of movement uh, among Senate Republicans to work with him, it'll be because of some of that goodwill that he engendered in the, in the chamber, you know, for so long. Right. Um, Chris, I think you mentioned earlier uh, some of the people that um, that might be considered for cabinet post uh, in Joe Biden's administration. Um, with the Republicans, at least for now, still controlling the Senate, we'll see what happens in Georgia. Um, that would have a real impact on uh, the kind of people that Biden could appoint to his cabinet, correct? In terms of there's got a lot of pressure from progressives, let's say, to put Bernie Sanders in as labor secretary, right? Or Elizabeth Warren, a treasury secretary. Um, that realistic? I think it depends on – I think we have to look at the full slate of folks and think about who the Republicans are going are gonna to take issue with and, and, who, um, and who they won't. And I, it's hard to know uh, person by person unless you know what the broader list is going to look like. Certainly, there are other names. We saw uh, Richard Trumka yesterday talking about the uh, – I believe it was the the Boston mayor um, for labor. There's a, there's sort of a split there with some other names hmm. thrown in. Sanders is interesting because um, he went back uh, to early in the in the general election with Biden, and they worked on these committees. Um, he's he's done quite a bit, as has uh, Warren, to help Biden in this in this election. Warren raised a lot of money. She's obviously on the short list for vice president. Um, there's also, um, and this gets into the question of, of, uh, how speedily this transition can move along the, the question for folks who are lesser known and maybe haven't run for president of the, uh, background checks and the vetting of some of these people, uh, mayors out there, people who have not been vetted at that level, um, and where they might emerge. 
Um, also wondering for positions like commerce names that have come up or, or, or others, if, um, if the Republican control of the Senate causes Biden to go in a more, as you were kind of pointing out, moderate direction with some of right. the picks, um, it, it, he will have uh, progressive representation in his cabinet. We know that. The question is just who is it going to be um, and what position is it, is it going to be? Is it going to be um, HUD or one of these other ones? Or is it going to be, like you say, Treasury, which is, is one of the most uh, contentious um, uh, fights to come, I would say. Um, and, and also, obviously, you look at something like Secretary of State. Uh, there was talk of, uh, of Susan Rice. Does she make it through a Republican Senate versus, um, versus if Democrats had control? There's going to be major impacts on, on who he picks and, and who can get through. Uh, it is a little bit early to know right now. What we do know from the Biden side is that they are preparing not only uh, contingency plans and plan A and plan B for the type of legislation they would push, um, but also for the, the cabinets there based on what happens in Georgia. They're basically coming up with, uh, with, with more than one game plan um, that they could push very, very quickly and pursue very, very quickly, depending on what happens in the Senate. Right. Um, so, by the way, on that point, uh, just a little a trend, a little sidebar here. Uh, I want to point out that uh, Chris Liu, uh, our good friend, uh, a frequent guest on the Bill Press Pod. I'm sure all of you have been on a roundtable with Chris Liu, who is a formerly uh, Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. Uh, he was Cabinet Secretary for President Obama. Uh, and a, now a senior fellow at the Miller Institute at the University of Virginia. Uh, Chris Liu uh, has been named to the transition team by President Biden to work on particularly the Department of Labor. Uh, he's in that position, so we won't be seeing him on the podcast, but we're very proud of our fellow roundtabler, Chris Liu, who's now part of the Biden transition team. We'll be uh, uh, expecting great things from him as well. Um, so, Ginger, I want to move to – well, let me just ask you, overall, you grew up in Delaware. Um, how do you think how, – how would you rate, uh, you know, the Biden team's handling of this transition so far, including, you know, their uh, period last week when they weren't official and then from Saturday on when they were declared the president-elect? How's the team handled it, do you think? Team Delaware, right? Like, uh, yeah, there you uh, go. <laughs> we, gotta, we gotta make sure that we mention uh, that Bill is from Delaware and that I, I, <laughs> I live, I, as I say, that you're from Delaware and that I um, lived there uh, for many years of my childhood, although not all of them. I get to claim lots of states, uh, the perk there. But um, I think Delaware is getting its moment, right? Um, that's <laughs> for, for sure. sure. Um, everyone that ever teased me about being from Delaware, um, they can just take this one, right? Um, <laughs> but I think that we're seeing a team um, that has done this before. There's just so much overlap between Team Biden and the Obama White House um, mm -hmm. that, you know, our earlier conversation about the transition, I mean, it, you're, there was you know, some reporting by my colleagues in the White House at NBC that said, you know, um, is Biden going to go meet with Trump at the White House um, as Trump did with Obama? Um, and they said, you know, aides were telling our folks no, because uh, it's not like he needs a, a tour around the building. He knows where to go. Um, and, and Everyone there has 
COVID. Um, so like, yeah, why, right. why, why go there? Um, uh, so I think that's what we're, it sort of underscores uh, the whole thing, right? That they're, that they're trying to get up, uh, ramp up. They're trying to turn their focus onto taking power. Um, and, and, you know, we heard, and you know, I know, Bill, we talked about Trump, but Trump's people kept saying that in, in 16, they were building the plane as they were landing it. Well, when Trump won, uh, they were all totally shocked and they had real no plan <laughs> uh, to start transitioning. And that's not happening yeah. here. I mean, there are short lists. Yeah. There are people that have been vetted. There are those internal power uh, 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 quest starting. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think that we're seeing that. And I think that um, Biden campaigned as the president you won't notice is there. And that's what they're trying to do. Uh, you know, he's in Rehoboth. He will keep a low profile. He'll do the occasional events. But I, I, I don't think we should be shocked when we don't hear very much from him in, in the coming weeks and months. Okay, now final point. Uh, Each of you has a major decision to make, uh, and I want to know how you're making it for your news organization. Are you ever going to hire a pollster again? Will you ever (laughs) trust a pollster again, Uh, not only after 2016, but after 2020? Jason? Uh, I... I'm fortunate in that it's not uh, it's not in the cards right now because uh, once the Economist uh, ceased to become the, the be the parent company of uh, CQ Roll Call, we you know we we lost our relationship with YouGov, which was actually like one, among the, one of the more mm-hmm. accurate pollsters. Uh, so it's not in the cards at this point. So it's a luxury decision I don't have to make or I don't have to be a part of. <laughs> but the big question is, a lot of people, right? Right. have to decide what they're going to do right. uh, about pollsters. What we're, do you do? we're certainly going to be more skeptical about it um, and 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 try to couch these tools because we do get access to polls, you know, both uh, private, you know, campaign polling mm-hmm. uh, and look at public polling. But we, we certainly have to we're, we're going to be taking it with a lot more grain of salt um, and trying to take into account what people have missed. And which is particularly that, you know, a lot of people are just simply not picking up the phone anymore uh, because they don't have to. Uh, yeah. People are not responding to polls like they did. And I think that that's contributing to like us missing a lot of the information. <laughs> Uh, and Maya and Chris, both from Politico, I mean, I've always put a lot of trust in Politico's polling team. Uh, I know them well, uh, a couple of them. And um, but it's it wasn't it just across the board. The pollsters really they'll be the first to admit, I think they they blew it this time. They got the presidential thing again, almost right on. But in terms of Senate races, Susan Collins, there's not one single poll that showed she was going to win in Maine, right? Uh, same thing, I think, in North Carolina. So what, what's the internal talk at Politico? Maya, you start us off, and then Chris, you weigh in, about polling. Well, I'll be honest, I'm not exactly privy to a lot of the internal conversations as they relate to polling, but I know, I mean, we've written, a, we've written stories about just how pollsters absolutely did blow it this year. Um, and, you know, the fact that exactly like we had based a lot of our own projections and our, our own just ideas of how the night was going to go off of the people that we were working with on this kind of stuff. And it was just totally, totally off balance. Um, and I think, you know, it's also started an interesting conversation about what has to happen from here. So does this mean that reporters need to spend more time talking to voters on the ground? Does this mean that we need to actually invest more in getting to know, you know, the quote unquote average voter? I mean, but my thing is, 
um, you know, people lie then too, and people lie to pollsters. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's also part of part of this conversation too, is just how, how you pose these questions and how you try to, um, you know, monitor for, for, for people's, you know, dishonesty or just for, you know, outcomes that you didn't expect or people changing their minds at the last minute. Like these are all things that fall outside of the margin of error. And it's, it's hard to see how, how we, move forward from this and trying to protect against those things. What's your take, Chris, in, from the yeah, inside? Like, my, like Maya, I'm not in on or haven't been in on any of these internal conversations. I know uh, Morning Consult for in, in large part has done a really good job in, in terms of uh, polling over a long period of time, our polling partner. Uh, you, you'll definitely have to have a a segment with our uh, uh, resident expert, Steve Shepard on polling, who has, you know, yeah. to his credit, like Maya said, written um, some stories post-election oh, yeah. uh, that have been very uh, uh, searing of where, what polling was at. I guess what I would say about this is, yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing going forward that we don't um, uh, feel like we know what the outcome is going to be of some of these races, that we go and cover them and even, um, you know, telegraph to readers that a lot of these things are still uh, still up in the air. And these are the factors we're looking at. And these are what the candidates are saying. And this is what they're trying to do. Um, the other thing is, you know, there there is internal polling, as Jason mentioned, from the campaigns that generally, um, particularly on the Republican side this time around, um, can be pretty good. And so we, we should separate the uh, commercial mm -hmm. media polling from the internal polling. So there, there's guidance that we're going to have. Campaigns do share that. We always take it with a grain of salt um, just because they're the ones conducting it. But, you know, they're the ones who are trying to win the race. And, and if anyone has uh, more of a, yeah. a dog in the fight in that polling, it's, it's, the, it's the campaigns. And so I think yeah. looking at these things skeptically from, from the outside, covering them without pretending like we know what the outcome is going to be, um, is not is not going to be a bad thing for for political coverage. Uh, and has there been a, a come to Jesus moment at uh, NBC? I, I imagine there has. Jim Ginger. Again, this is outside my pay grade to decide how <laughs> polling gets done. Um, but I think that um, our great decision desk and team was just aware and knew that polls are not perfect, right? They're not written in stone. They're they're a science, they're an art. Um, and I think that's important for all of us to remember going forward. And I think it's really important to have some, some examination about why people would lie to pollsters, right? Like, what is it about this race and this president that has made people even more inclined to lie to us and to pollsters? I mean, as Maya said, people have always lied to reporters. I mean, it happens. But, but what is it that We've done, and he's done. That has made it that people don't trust telling us um, that they that they were going to vote for him. Yeah, I saw one one pollster who was quoted as saying, "I think what we've learned is that anytime Donald Trump is on the ballot, you can't trust the polls." <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so, what does that mean going forward? I don't know. Uh, but um, it has been a week where we a week where we've been consumed, of course, with post election coverage on the Trump campaign, on the Biden transition team. Uh, there been some other stories out there in the news, some of which we may have missed uh, and some of which may have uh, come to your attention and caught your attention as your favorite story of the week. Um, 
Who wants to start us off? Maya, why don't you start us off? Your favorite story of the week. Sure. So actually, um, the story that I have really enjoyed that I just read this morning, actually, is the New York Times profile of Abby Phillip um, that called her next gen CNN. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Huh. And it just basically said, you know, that cable news has long been kind of an old boys club. And, mm-hmm. you know, throughout this really tumultuous campaign season and election week that we had, um, Philip really was a calm, steady voice, excellent analysis, um, and really a breakout star, I think, of, Absolutely. Uh, of yeah. this time. So really great profile that kind of looked at all that, all of the prep that went into, um, you know, her actually ultimately being asked to anchor um, election night coverage and mm-hmm. just kind of where she comes from and, and who she is. So she's not only a fantastic reporter, but a great person. Um, and I'm really happy to see this, this level of recognition. I'm excited for, for where she goes next. Applause well deserved uh, for Abby Phillips. I, I loved watching her uh, through, through, throughout this uh, this uh, this period. Uh, how about you, Ginger? What caught your attention? Yeah, I um, was really uh, interested in this piece I read in the Washington Post this week about how Kamala Harris will not be the first vice president uh, who is non-white. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of people have this misconception, and I think it sort of underscores our view of history and how yes. history works. Uh, but the first non-white vice president was Charles Curtis, who was Herbert Hoover's vice president from 1929 to 1933, and he was a Native American. Um, and they sort of like laid out his story and how mm-hmm. uh, he became a lawyer and then got into politics. And I really thought it was a great um, sort of look at a figure in history that has sort of been overlooked and how um, when we have one person who breaks uh, a barrier and then we don't have more people afterwards, we can um, sort of rebuild that barrier. Um, And I think that that's what this is sort of underscoring as well. And it's something really important to remember as we move forward from America's first black president, and now we see America's first woman vice president. Right. I I was stunned by that story. Uh, I thought, oh, my God, I I should have known this, and I didn't didn't know it. Uh, Good point. Uh, Chris Catalago, what caught your attention? So I will... uh... Uh, start by seconding um, seconding the story that Maya mentioned. I think uh, mm-hmm. Abby's been so great over this election. Um, mine, and you guys will have to uh, 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 excuse um, some of my description of this because it can get uh, uh, oh. this is a, a real fierce fight happening um, in uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, with Ukraine and Russia, uh, it's a standoff over who can lay claim to borscht, which is the beet uh, <laughs> soup. Um, there's uh, Ukraine wants to um, basically have this recognized as a, a, a cultural cultural heritage, and there's a lot of research going into um, who actually owns this beet soup. Um, and my mom is from the Ukraine, so, or from Ukraine. So I, I, uh, grew up Uh-oh. eating this and it's, it's, uh, I, I'll be watching this closely to see if force is recognized, um, as, uh, by the, the ministry, ministry of, of culture and, and parliament in Ukraine, um, and then becomes this UNESCO, 
um, uh, you know, piece of cultural heritage and, and just an interesting I, story in the, in the New York Times that came out uh, I, last week. I don't think Vladimir Putin will allow, allow this to happen. Yeah, well, exactly. He probably will annex Ukraine rather than give up Borscht. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great fight. Jason Dick. Yeah, I, I want to say that uh, I'm sure that the great Ukrainian diner in New York, Vasolka's, uh, is heavily weighing in on the side of Ukraine. <laughs> I miss Vasolka's a lot uh, from not having been in New York in a while. Um, my my favorite story of the week, I, I also uh, read uh, uh, this morning. Uh, I had a different story, but the, the one that I just oh. kind of fell in love with was the story in the, in the Washington Post. Uh, from their Berlin, uh, from from the Berlin desk, uh, Love Day Morris wrote a, a short profile of uh, the husband and wife team behind uh, yes. BioNTech, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. who who is uh, the the developers of the, the vaccine that Pfizer is is uh, made their announcement about on Sunday that there's a ninety percent effectiveness rate in their clinical trials, and I love it that these um, I mean there's a there's some there's some interesting sort of Germ- Germanic uh, Ger- German culture things going on. Uh, they are German, but they're also Turkish. Uh, the, the 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 son and, and daughter of Turkish immigrants to Germany. Turkish immigrants have this sort of strange status in, in Germany, where they're you know they they are are a lot of blue collar uh, folks and so forth. Mm-hmm. And it's almost sort of like uh, some Latinos uh, in, in the southwestern United States. And they're just these super chill people. They don't own a car. And they just like, you know, they were asked about like Trump, you know, and, and what he was saying about Pfizer. And, and they just sort of like replied, well, you know, obviously that's dumb. And like, you know, the, the U.S. government has no role in what we did here and it just goes through their you know how they you know shifted from they they've been working with pfizer on influenza vaccines for years but their their main focus has been on cancer vaccines and and vaccines that that basically tell the body to produce antibodies and, and antiviral proteins and they shifted that focus at the beginning of the year uh to to before the pandemic really hit hard and and now they're going to be like billionaires uh, and maybe they'll buy a car you know (laughs) no it was a remarkable profile i saw that story and i thought nobel prize right i mean (laughs) ever uh well i am so i was so nervous that one of you would pick my favorite story (laughs) so i thank you for not but my favorite story was prompted by a headline in the new york times which i will read you yesterday and the headline is what honks weighs 17 pounds and rides the A train. You might have seen this story. Uh, this is a story of a woman who, for her 30th birthday, she rode her bike all the way out to near uh, JFK Airport, where there's a um, wildlife refuge, and was biking around this refuge and saw a swan that she knew was in trouble. Uh, she approached the swan. She put her, took her jacket off and put it over the swan, picked the swan up, which does weigh 17 pounds, and walked a mile carrying the swan, rolling her bicycle, a mile to the parking lot. Uh, the ranger station was closed, nobody to help her there. A couple came along who offered to give her a ride, um, but they couldn't get the bike and the swan and her in their little car. So they called a friend who showed up with another car. This is such a story. And the two cars made a little caravan to the nearest subway station where she boarded the subway with the swan and her bicycle. 
and took the swan all the way into Manhattan on the Upper East Side of Manhattan to a refuge center there where the swan is now being taken care of. And what I thought was so funny about this story, not only that she did this great rescue, but she said on the subway where she's sitting there with a swan wearing a red jacket in her lap, nobody noticed. Nobody said anything. She said there was a man across from her who was looking at his cell phone and never once looked up and noticed <laughs> that she was sitting there with a swan. So um, what a good deed for her 30th birthday and for bird life and for the swan community in general. <laughs> Great story. All right. Uh, Jason Dick from a Roll Call. Ginger Gibson, NBC News, Maya King, and Chris Catalago from Politico. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for your take on the news of the day. And one thing we haven't talked about, folks, but it's still very, very real, and that is COVID-19, which is just uh, menacing through this country. Uh, worse levels, record levels than ever before. So please, as we leave you today, we encourage you to be careful. Listen to all the warnings. Wear your mask. Uh, be careful about what plans you make for Thanksgiving. Be safe. Be strong. Take care of yourselves. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.